You guys know once a year the world celebrates the best and brightest in their accomplishments in a number of areas, a science basically, literature, economics, and peace when the Nobel Prizes are given out uh, since 1901. In 1901 when these prizes, you know, part of it's, it's a medal and it's something in a book that's writing, <clears throat> easily forgotten perhaps, but the cash gift is, is memorable and in 1901 when this started, the Nobel Prize was $150,000. That was the cash portion of that. Today, it's $10 million. A Nobel Prize <laughs> financially is worth $10 million. It's a little ironic that the Peace Prize, you know, when I think of Nobel, I'm generally thinking of the Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, it's named for the guy who invented dynamite. Alfred Nobel, like his father, was a great inventor. And Alfred Nobel took nitroglycerin, which was very powerful, but dangerously unstable. And he found this way to mix it with stabilizing compounds so that it could be used, so that it was safe. And of course, you can imagine, this was in the mid and late 1800s, what a boon this was to anybody that's building roads and bridges, the mining industry, various aspects of, of uh, industry, uh, dynamite was a great thing to have because it took this power, it harnessed this unstable power, and it gave these guys the ability to use this power in a controlled fashion for beneficial gains. This was all good. The flip side, of course, was that you could take this very powerful stuff and you could use it for other uses as well. So, of course, through time, you think of wars and terrorism, dynamite, Nobel's discovery, what he gave to the world, the power he gave to the world, of course, has been used negatively too, so it would be impossible to probably tally up the number of people who have been killed through the use of dynamite or its chemical cousins or descendants. Nobel said this, my dynamite will sooner lead to peace than a thousand world conventions. As soon as men find that in one instant whole armies can be utterly destroyed, they surely will abide by golden peace. It didn't happen, of course. We, we blow each other up today. It didn't happen. But that was his thought. There's one story. I don't know if this is true or not. It's said that his uh, um, obituary was published prematurely, somehow by accident. And part of the obituary was how disastrous his discovery in, in the uh, lives of men had been. And that it was that obituary that prompted him to change his will towards the end of his life to create this, this prize, this recognition for these various outstanding achievements by people every year, that it was that that changed his mind and, and why we remember him today. Uh, either way, though, ask yourself this question. Is Nobel responsible for the use of the power he gave the world when it's used to kill people? Is Nobel responsible for the death that his discovery brought on people who took what he gave and chose to use it in a way it wasn't intended? Was the abuse of power his fault? Was he responsible? Was he culpable for it? He was charged publicly with being responsible for the death of other people because dynamite was used in warfare. But really, was he responsible for those deaths based on his discovery? I would argue no. Think of it this way too, you can take a hypodermic needle 
and you can inject medicine in somebody that makes them better. You can take the same hypodermic needle and you can shoot up narcotics. You can destroy your life, you can kill, you can end your life or the lives of others, do the same thing. And the question is, is power the issue or is the use and abuse of power the issue? Where's the culpability fall? Is power the problem or is it the way that power is used that's the problem? We're in the last, we're in the seventh week of a seven-week series entitled God Is, and the theme this week is God Is in Control. God Is in Control. To say God is in control is a little bit more personal than saying God is omnipotent. And if we're thinking theologically, that's what we'd say. God is omnipotent, and that just means uh, all, omni, all or every, and potent power. God has all power. God has all the power that is. And any power in this earth that's exercised, it's actually subject to, it's derived from God and God's power. In the Old Testament, God is called, in some places, El Shaddai. He's the God who is, or He's the God who exists by Himself, by His own power, apart from anyone or anything else. In the New Testament, God is called repeatedly the Almighty. And, and Almighty is a pretty good uh, English translation. It just means all power. In fact, Later on, we'll see, God says that He describes Himself repeatedly as the one who has all power. He's the Almighty One, He says of Himself. If you remember on some of the earlier discussions we've had about God, we've said that God is perfect, so that in anything God is, God is perfectly that thing. So we said in the past, God is good, so He's perfect goodness. We've said God is holy or just, so He's perfect holiness. He's perfect justice. That also means since God is powerful. He's perfectly powerful. He has all power. By His nature, God has all power. Since God is all powerful, we infer that nothing happens in this universe that God does neither cause or allow. If He's all powerful, nothing happens apart from His power. He causes or allows all things. So God really is in control because He really has all power. Think about this on a cosmic scale, on the macro world and universal scale. I'm going to go through a few scriptures here with you. From the first verse of the Bible, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Before Genesis 1-1, there is no universe, there is no world, there's no matter. In the beginning, God, out of His power, created something from nothing. This is unique power. We don't you and I today, we don't have this kind of creative power. We can't make something out of nothing. God has this power uniquely. None of us have, this isn't derived. We don't get the benefit of this. Have you guys heard the joke about the scientist who they're going to duel God and they're going to say, God, we're going to make a man out of dust and you make a man out of dust. And then God says, fine, but you make your own dust. God, God has power to create that no one else has. God uniquely has this creative power. He speaks the worlds into existence out of nothing. And of course, when we think of power today, all power is derived back at Genesis 1.1. God who has all power created the heavens and the earth. All power in this universe goes back to Genesis 1.1 and God. Job says in 42 verse 2, I know you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Two things here, two thoughts. God can do all things. That is, if it's doable, if it's possible, God can do it. God can't do the impossible. 
So God, a holy God can't be unjust. He can't sin. God can't sin. So we're not saying things like that. But if something's possible, God can do it. If it, if it requires power to do, God can do it because He has all power. There's nothing that would prevent Him from doing something if power is the issue. And the second thing is this. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. What does that mean? It means there's nothing else and there's no one else who can stop God. So God has all power and no one else has all power because no one else and nothing else can stop God if He's determined to do things. Isaiah says this in Isaiah 40, verse 25 and 26. God speaking says, To whom will you liken me? that I would be his equal. Who would you raise up as my equal, God says. Lift up your eyes on high. See who has created the stars, the one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. God speaks the worlds into existence and then he keeps the world going as it were. In fact, I love this thought. Job picks up the same thought that the constellations, you know, they're separated by light years. The stars, you and I look at a constellation, stars look close together, and you know they're, they're light years apart. And, and Isaiah implies and Job implies God's like a charioteer in a chariot and the constellation are stars. And He's that big and He's that powerful. He keeps the planets in their orbit and the stars in their places. God says, who would you compare to me? You can't. There's no one like me. Or in Isaiah 43, 13, there's no one who can deliver out of my hand. I act and who can reverse it. Similar to Job's thought. No one can deliver out of my hand. No one else has power that can compete with mine or with me. I act and who can reverse it. If I choose to do something, there's nothing that can prevent that from happening. And then in Revelation 1 verse 8, God says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, that is the first and the last, He who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And it's interesting, thinking of a Sunday school discussion here just a few minutes ago, God uses this term Almighty uh, nine times in Revelation. And of course, Revelation is the story, not only the unveiling of Jesus, it's the revelation of who Christ is, but it's the story in which God tells how He's taking the planet back over, how He's bringing His rule back to the earth. And when he's doing it in the context of God retaking the earth, as it were, he says he's the Almighty One nine times. That makes sense. Also think of this in Acts 17, 26. When Paul's speaking in Athens, he says this, that God from one man made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined, God determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. Now think about this for a minute. Paul says that God has established the nations in the times they exist and their geographical boundaries. God determines what nations exist, when they exist, and how great a territory they occupy. You know, Alexander the Great ruled all of the kind of the habitable earth, what we would call the known world at the time, but he got so far and he couldn't go any further. But his army had decimated everybody before them. They got in the far reaches of India and turned around. Why is that? Alexander would look at practical effects, but at some level we'd say, God said, no further. Acts 17, Paul says, God determines the nations that exist, the times they exist, and the boundaries 
that they exist within. God controls those things. This is hard to believe and hard to get a handle on sometimes, but that's what Paul says. It's God's power that constrains the time and the extent of nations. So God has all power. All power comes from His original act of creation. If it's in the material world, it came from Genesis 1.1. And God has overseen the times, the affairs of nations, so that in the end, we'll talk about this more later, they accomplish His purpose and His will. God is all-powerful. God is in control. I think this is the part of this concept that is the easiest to get a hold of. God is in control. He's got all power. And on the big sweep or scale of history in the universe, God's in control. I think that's the easiest part of this to get a hold of. But then bring it a little closer to home. God is in control personally of your life and mine. God is in control of your life and mine personally and in all the details. In fact, in a sense, no different than He is in the nations. The verses I'll read here, you'll see that essentially God says... He controls our individual lives in the same sense that He does nations. The time you live in, the extent of your dominion and the sphere of your influence, and actually what, what and who you are. David said in Psalm 31, saying of God, You are my God, my times are in your hand. My times, David says, are in your hand. God's in control of my time, David says. And think about this for just a minute. That means the time I'm born, the time I live, the time I die. It means the events that occupy the time I'm on the earth. What comes into my life is what God causes or allows. David says, we say of ourselves, our times are in God's hands. You won't die before God says so. You won't die before God causes or allows your death. You're not going to be born before God says it's time for you to enter this world. God's in control of the time of our life individually for each one of us. Think about this. Paul writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 10, 13, and the issue here is um, he's being rejected by false teachers and leaders in the church in Corinth. And so he's having to defend himself so that the Corinthians will listen to him. And in that context, Paul says this, we won't boast beyond our measure, but within the measure of the sphere which God apportioned to us as a measure to reach even as far as you. Paul says, we're operating within the measure of the sphere which God apportioned to us as a measure. Paul says God is in control of his ministry. And, and think of this for just a minute. Why is Paul the, the apostle to the Gentiles and not the Jews? Because that's where God put him. Peter was the apostle to the Jews. Why? Because that's where God wanted him. These phrases, these terms in 2 Corinthians 10, 13 are measurements and uh, sphere. And Paul says it's like this. It's as if you could take a compass or a tape on a map, just like the boundaries of the nation, and you could circumscribe the area that God gave Paul to speak to. He didn't give him other areas. He dictated the sphere of influence Paul had. No more and no less. This is, a, this is radical. If you look at your life at some time and you think you should be more important, more influential, more whatever, see, at some point I say, you know what? God determines the boundaries of my influence. And your influence. 
Paul's not complaining because he's not the apostle to the Jews because he gets it this way. God wants me working over here. God has dedicated these areas for me to work in and not others. God determined the boundary, if you will, of Paul's ministry, just like the boundary of a nation. Same concept, smaller scale. Think about this, the spiritual gifts of Paul or anyone else. When you trust in Christ and the Holy Spirit enters you, He brings gifts to you, grace gifts, charismatic gifts is what they're called in the Greek, charismas, um, And these are gifts you didn't have before. They're given to you. And you know what? You don't choose them. God doesn't ask you which ones you want. He tells you which ones He's giving you. So in 1 Corinthians 12, 7, to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. It's given by God to you to serve others. In verse 11, one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as He wills. As a new Christian, you're given gifts by God as He chooses. God controls the spiritual gifts you have. So if you have a gift of leading or teaching, it's because that's what God gave you. If you have a spiritual gift of mercy, administration, serving, whatever it is, it's because that's what God gave you. Do you see how this can affect the way you view yourself and others? If God gave you the gifts you have, who are you to tell Him He did wrong? If you you have a gift of service and you wanted to teach and you say, God, you ripped me off, who are you to tell God He ripped you off? Plus, think of it this way. If to be humble biblically means to have an appropriate assessment of who you are and what you are, and that is biblically, it's not thinking lower of yourself than you should. It's not thinking more highly of yourself. It's thinking, Paul says in Romans 12, which we'll look at in just a second, objectively. If you can say to yourself, God's given me this gift, that's objective, and that's humility. God's put me in this part of the world at this time of history, That's true biblical humility. I recognize what God's made me, who He's made me, the sphere He's made me to occupy and to influence. God's in control of your spiritual gifts. You know, not only that, Romans 12, 3 says, Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. Think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. God has given a measure of faith. And then the rest of the passage says, and operate in your spiritual gift accordingly. That means this. Not only does God control what spiritual gifts you get, God controls the amount of faith by which you exercise that gift. What does that mean? Uh, Billy Graham. Billy Graham has faith to exercise evangelism through decades on a worldwide scale. Somebody else might look at Billy Graham and say, that's what I want to be. But over time they may realize that's not the amount of faith God's given me to exercise my gift of evangelism. You know what? It's not as if either one of them are right or wrong. It's what God has given. So you and I not only have gifts that were given because God chose to give them to us, we also have been given a portion of faith by which to operate those gifts. So This kind of, to me, this has a settling influence. I realize, you know what? 
I don't have to conquer the world. I figured out I'm not Alexander the Great. I never will be. I'm not Billy Graham. I'm not Chuck Swindoll. I'm not all these other guys that maybe in the past, or you've had people you thought, I aspire to that. Aspiration's a great thing on one hand, but you might beat your head against the wall if that's not what God wants you to be or to do or the kind of sphere He wants you to operate within. So God sets the boundaries of nations in time and geography, and guess what? For you and I, He determines the time in history we occupy. He determines the limit of our influence. He controls our spiritual gift. He controls the exercise of the spiritual gift. God's in control of your life and mine, not just nations. He's in control of our lives as well. Big scale, God's in control. Little scale, God's in control. And the place I want to park for the balance of our time is a little different. But if you tell people, if you go through this, this is kind of, uh, it has lots of implications, and I don't mean to belittle any of what I've already said because it's important. But kind of where people settle out, if you say God's all-powerful, the key question that comes up is this. Why is there evil in the world? Are you with me? If God's good and He has all power, then where does evil come from? We appear to have a contradiction here. How can there be a good, all-powerful God and evil existing in the world at the same time? In fact, if you talk to people and share the gospel, this is one of the things that comes up repeatedly. How can God be all-powerful or how can He be good if there's evil in the world? This may get a little uh, convoluted. I hope not. I'll try, and, I'll try and be as clear as I can, but I think the, I think the perspective is helpful. God has all power. We've, we've said that, and I think we've made the case for that, so we, we presuppose that on everything I'm saying here. God has all power, and power is the ability to do something. It's, it's capacity. It's ability. So God has all power, so we know if anything happens, it's caused or allowed by God. Besides power, though, there's this principle in the world that's at work in the world, and it's certainly described in the Scriptures, and it's called authority. And authority is the right to use power. Authority is the right to use power. So if you look at a police force, why does a policeman have power to pull out a gun and pull you over? He has authority. He's using power under authority because he's given that authority ultimately by us, the citizens, through our elected officials, etc. He has power that's used under authority. Now, you can steal power, and I'm not talking about that. Someone can steal something, they can act illegitimately, and I'm not talking about that. In the general run-of-the-mill times of, of our lives and in the world, power is used because someone has authority to use it. Power is used because authority is there to use it. In John 3.27, when John the Baptist is losing disciples to Jesus, to the new kid on the block, that new prophet from Galilee, you know, his disciples are complaining to him. And what does John say? He says, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. John the Baptist says of Jesus, he's exercising the authority God's given him. Those people are going to him because that's what God wants. That's what God has given him. In John 19, verse 10 and 11, when Jesus is standing before Pilate and he's not defending himself, and these accusations have been made against him, and Pilate senses this is an innocent guy that I'd like to turn loose, and Jesus isn't helping him do this. Pilate says, I have authority 
to release you, and I have authority to crucify you. And he did. He did. He had authority to do both. Jesus answered, though, and said, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. Jesus says this, you do have authority because you're the appointed representative of the Roman government. And the Roman government is a nation, it's a kingdom. And what does that mean? They're subject to God's authority because God controls the rise and fall of nations and their boundaries. So Jesus says, you're right, you have authority, and it's because it's been given to you from above. It's a chain of command. The power you have is because you have derived authority. That's why you have power. Now go back to Genesis 1. In the Garden of Eden, at the end of creation, God makes man. And what does He tell him? Rule over the earth. God gave Adam and Eve power because He gave them authority. They had His authority to use His power to rule this earth. And what did they do? When they chose to believe Satan and follow him, they in effect gave Satan their authority. They didn't follow God. They didn't use the authority and power God gave them for the ends God meant. When they sinned, they gave Satan the authority they had to rule the earth. And that authority is still in Satan's hands today. So if you say, God's all-powerful and He's all-good, how come there's evil in the world? It's because of this. It's because man sinned, that was evil, and in sinning, man, Adam and Eve, our forebears, our representatives at the time, they gave Satan the authority God had given them to exercise power over the earth. There's evil in the world today because man sinned and gave the authority to rule the earth to Satan. So the earth you and I inhabit today, it's run by sort of a rogue terrorist government that's not out for our welfare, but is out to destroy us. But that's why there is evil in the world today. Now, it is true that in Jesus' death and resurrection, that authority that Satan has has actually been broken. His power has actually been broken. And this is something, this is what I mean. I hope this doesn't get too convoluted. Uh, and let me just read you a few verses about this. First uh, John 3, 8 says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Destroy the devil's power or ability to control men's lives. That's why Jesus came to the earth. First John 3, 8 says. Hebrews 2, 14 says this, of Jesus, by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, he came to destroy the power of the devil. And Colossians 2.15, of Jesus, having disarmed the powers and authorities, those are demonic, satanic powers, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing, triumphing over them by the cross. Jesus' death and resurrection is God's uh, power play, if you will, to retake the authority to operate power over this earth. Jesus' death and resurrection is that. And in the end, 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus will come back and He'll reinstitute His kingdom rule over this earth. He'll submit all other powers and authorities under Him and then He'll turn around and present the kingdom of the earth to the Father. That's the future but it hasn't happened yet. 
So you and I, the scripture says, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, we're ambassadors. We are citizens of heaven. We belong to Christ. Our home is actually in heaven. We're citizens of heaven who operate as ambassadors on the earth. And the kingdom that we live in here, it's hostile. It's hostile to the kingdom we came from. And it's a kingdom ruled by an evil dictator who's out to harm as many people as he can and to oppose the kingdom of God that we belong to. Evil in the world. Satan at work. There's two things to remember that that mitigate this, uh, that mitigate the truth or the effect that there's evil in the world because there's sin in the world and because Satan still operates with authority and power in this world. The first is this. Because God is good and because He's all-powerful, it means this. If He hasn't already judged evil, removed evil, it means that He will. If God's all-good and all-powerful, He can't tolerate evil indefinitely, eternally, and He has the power to end it. And so if He hasn't, it only means that He will. This is, this is comfort, this is hope for the future. The second thing is this. It's that for believers, God promises to take all the convoluted, harmful, hurtful, evil things that happen in your life and mine and to turn them around in a way that will actually mean blessing for you and I, if not in time, in eternity. Sometimes in time, sometimes in eternity. But God says that He will, in the midst of this evil world that we live in, still under Satan's authority and power, that he'll take those evil things that happen and he'll turn them around so that they actually benefit us. When Joseph, back in Genesis, was hated by his brothers, they wanted to do him evil, and then they did. Through the collective power that the brothers collectively had, they threw him in a pit, they were going to kill him, and then they decided to sell him as a slave to those Ishmaelites going down to Egypt. So they did real evil to their brother. Real harm, real hurt, real loss, real frustration. He gets to Egypt and what happens? He's falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. He's thrown in prison unjustly. Evil is committed against him again. But what happens over time? He becomes the ruler under Pharaoh of all Egypt. He gets a family. He was the lowest real evil committed against him, and yet he's raised by God to be the second ruler in all of Egypt. He was a slave, now he's honored as the ruler in Egypt. He's given a wife, he has children, life is good, and he's blessed again. And beyond that, his presence in Egypt means that he becomes a savior for his father and all of his father's household. So that he says in Genesis 50 verse 20, You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Joseph could look back in his life and he could say, he suffered real evil, real injustice. But he looked back from the end of his life and said, what was meant for evil, God took and turned around. He raised me up as a ruler. He gave me honor and glory. He gave me a family. And he made me a savior for all of my father's household. No small thing. God took the evil, turned it around for good and for blessing. When you think of evil in the world, there's lots of things we could think of, but the greatest evil that's ever occurred in the world was the crucifixion of the Son of God on the cross. There's no one who's ever been in the world who's perfectly innocent except Christ. He's the only totally innocent 
perfectly innocent, perfect person that's walked the earth. And what, what did we do? We rejected Him and crucified Him. This is the greatest evil that's ever happened on the earth, to crucify the Son of God. The Creator of the earth comes to the earth and is rejected by His creation. The perfectly holy one is rejected as deficient. This is the greatest evil in all of history, but what was the effect? Because Jesus was on God's mission, and because He willingly came to the earth and sacrificed Himself, He gave God the the honor, if you will, of heaping more honor in Him in eternity. The Father and the Son love to honor each other. And Jesus receives honor in eternity for being the Savior of the world that He wouldn't have had as God the Son only. As the Savior of the world, He gives God the Father more opportunity to heap honor on Him throughout eternity. That's one thing. There are many things we could say. I'm going to name three. The other thing, which is significant for you and I, is that you and I are saved. We have salvation today because Jesus came to the earth and was crucified. The Romans and the Jews didn't know that this crucifixion of this Galilean was actually the propitiation for the sins of the world. They didn't know that, but God did. So the evil act that mankind committed against God, Jesus, was also the means by which our sins were atoned for. So the evil done against Jesus, God flips around again and brings about the salvation of the world. The salvation of all of us is because Jesus was crucified. And the third thing is this, that God reinstitutes His authority over creation through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, Satan's authority ended in some significant sense at the crucifixion and resurrection. And it goes something like this. When Jesus died on the cross, He died as Adam, as mankind. So that Adam's authority that God gave him, that he gave to Satan, ended when Adam, in the person of Jesus Christ, died on the cross. A dead man can't give authority to anyone. And when Jesus died on the cross, he died in our place. He died as the first Adam. So the authority Adam had given Satan was broken, which is the Colossians passage mentions, It was broken when Jesus died on the cross because it was, as it were, that Adam, that mankind died in Christ on the cross. But also, at the resurrection, the second Adam, which is what Paul calls Jesus in Romans, the second Adam was, if you will, born. So God reinstitutes a new creation with a new head to whom He gives authority to exercise His power to Jesus Christ through the resurrection. Think of it like this. In the first creation, God creates the world. The last creation is man, and He puts man in authority over that creation. In the new creation, the second Adam is actually the first part of that creation, and God has yet to institute the new heaven and the new earth that He'll rule over. So Jesus' death and resurrection was the end of Satan's authority to rule the heavens and the earth. The trouble or the reason we've still got evil is because, of course, the fulfillment of all that reclamation has not yet occurred. But it will. The death and resurrection guarantee that there's a new order. 
There's a new Adam, there's a new man from which every Christian derives their life. Just as we were in the first Adam and subject to death, as Christians were in the second Adam, we're subject to life. We're part of a new creation already. Romans 1, 4 says, Through the spirit of holiness, Jesus was declared with power to be the Son of God by His resurrection from the dead. And 1 Corinthians 6, 14 says, By His power, God raised the Lord from the dead and He will raise us also. So there is evil in the world, even though God's good and all-powerful. But the root, if you will, of the authority to use that power has been cut off, and there will be a day yet future when God submits again all things to Himself. There's a new heaven and a new earth with a new Adam, that first man, and all his descendants, including all Christians of all the ages. So, God has all power. He's omnipotent. He's in control of the nations, big things. He's in control of your life and mine. Think of it in in current terms. God's in control of terrorists, politicians. God's in control of wars. God's in control in your life when you lose your job or your spouse or your friend. The evil that's done against you, God promises to take around and turn to your benefit. God really is in control. And the upside of that is because He's a God who's good in love, He he turns that power around for our benefit no matter what's going on in our life on the earth. In the big things and the little things, God's in control and He promises to use all things in a way that benefits us. In summing up the last seven weeks, God is, He is, He's the eternally existent one, He's unity and plurality. And we bear that image in male and female. God's holy. He can't do unjustly. God can't be less than fair. God is love. He's all good. God is knowable. In fact, we were created to know Him. God is pleasable. And God is in control. And in seven weeks, we haven't done any more than scratch the scratch on the surface. That is knowing God. But hopefully, you remember we said at the first week, we tend to live shallow lives to the degree that we don't know God. And knowing God is is the relationship we're invited into. And getting to know Him a little bit should make us want to know Him a little bit more and a little bit more because it's in knowing Him that you and I experience anything that we can qualitatively call life or goodness. So I hope this is the, the beginning of living deeper, richer lives because we know where a deeper, richer life is to be had. Let's pray. Lord Jesus said in John 17, 3, that knowing you is eternal life. Lord, thanks that at the sacrifice of yourself, you've covered our sins. You've ended that first creation in Jesus' crucifixion. Lord, you have started the end of the kingdom of darkness. And the day when your son rules again over all things is coming. And Lord, the fact that you're good and powerful means it's just a question of when, not if. Father, I pray that the last seven weeks gives us some taste that makes us hungry to know more of you. And Father, that our lifetime is not enough, but it's a beginning in jumping into the knowledge of you, to know you as you are, Father, to love you, to be blessed in all of our life, Lord because of knowing you. I pray as we pray for our missionaries 
but the cups of our lives are overflowing, Lord, with the knowledge of you and the blessing that brings. In Jesus' name, amen.